The following audio is from Central Christian Church, located in Portales, New Mexico. To connect with Central, go to centralwire.org. Yeah, put your hands together.
Praise God, it is really good to be in church this morning, is it not? And Franklin does look a lot better than usual, I have to say. (laughs) It is such a privilege to be here this morning, and uh, what I had to say is really not intended to be anything other than uplifting. So I hope everyone does leave here edified, uh, both from what I had to say and from the powerful message that Don has. I want you to leave here happy and full of joy. Uh, So having said that, I believe that we are living in the very last days and that we're about to experience the most difficult economic times in the history of our nation. I am convinced that we're going to run headlong into a Great Depression that will dwarf the one of the 1930s. There's an abundance of data when combined with common sense makes us a pretty easy prediction to make. While economic experts argue whether we are in a recession, which we are, but I probably should say this, uh, the opinions of the speaker this morning are solely those of my own, not those of J.P. Stone Community Bank nor Central Christian Church. I have to put that out there. I have received no compensation whatsoever for the remarks I'm making. I believe we're in a recession. But we have a bigger problem. The Bible tells us time and time again that God will not be mocked. And the law of seed time and harvest and sowing and reaping supersedes every talking head on every cable TV show or podcast or blog. In an effort to avoid pain, both the previous administration and the current administrations have made fiscal decisions to increase financial spending, federal spending. And if you add that to the policy decisions that have recently been passed, whether you agree with them or not, we are going to continue to increase federal spending. So when you do that, the future is pretty easy to predict. I've been doing financial literacy all week, so I have to ask you guys this question. you know what causes inflation? It's really simple. You can go to Harvard Business School, you're not going to find a better explanation than this. It's too much money chasing too little stuff. That's inflation. What happens when there's not much money and not much stuff? Those are hard times, and I think that's where we're headed. We'll also have a defining election in the coming days that will either cement the current trajectory and policy or put a halt to it until the 2024 election. But no matter how this turns out, I don't see anything positive in terms of the problems that we currently face. Are you feeling uplifted yet? (laughs) I had a professor, um, some of you may know him, he's a great man by the name of Calvin DeWitt. And he wasn't a philosopher, he's a really smart uh, IT guy. And he taught me something that I still use to this day. When I was 20 years old, he said, Richard, you want to know the answer to almost every question you will have in life? And I'm riveted. I'm like, yes, Dr. DeWitt, please tell me. And he said, the answer to almost every question in life is this. It depends. Are you feeling uplifted yet? It depends. Let me ask you this. How many of you are concerned about the economic situation in Hungary right now, Eastern European nation? used to be part of the Soviet bloc. You guys worried about that? We have some very astute people that are worried about the situation in Hungary. Um, Honestly, I don't really care. That's a terrible thing to say. We don't have a bank in Hungary. I'm not worried about it. And the reason is, what happens in Hungary, does that really impact us here in Portales? Not really, right? How many of you guys have been thinking, have you guys even thought of Hungary recently? Okay. So the same basic principle with certain nuances applies to what I'm trying to say here. Do you live in God's economy or do you live in the United States economy? This is not a rhetorical question. As believers, the Bible tells us we are in the world, but we are not of the world. We're foreigners. We're aliens. We're just passing through. And yet what happens in this world seems to happen to the church, too. And I'm the same way. I get frustrated with politics, elections, taxes, the economy, policy decisions. I live here, too. 
That stuff does matter. I get it. But the simple truth is, at the end of the day, I am a Christian first, foremost, and always. I love the United States. I'm a proud citizen of this country. But I'm a born-again, spirit-filled believer, first, foremost, and always. And I am choosing to live in God's economy no matter what happens in this nation. And I can tell you this, as for me and my house, we are going to serve God. And my God has never failed me in 50 years on this planet, and he will not start failing me now. Amen. Isaac planted the seed in the middle of a famine, and he reaped a hundred times what he sowed. Was Isaac known in the Bible as the great farmer? No. Matter of fact, it's a little blurb of a scripture. Almost nobody talks about it, right? Why did God do God magnified that seed? He blessed Isaac when nobody else was being blessed because Isaac had a covenant with God. We have a covenant with God. But it requires something of us. Isaac was on the altar, if you guys will recall, and Abraham was about to take his life. Isaac had some skin in the game. He knew about the covenant of God, and we do too, but it requires something of us. If you want to be a part of God's economy, it's more than just saying, yay, that sounds great. Put your money where your mouth is. You need to obey God in your tithes and giving. Tithing is not tipping. It's not giving God a 20 when you get a raise. You calculate your tithe before taxes come out, and you give God 10% off the top, 10% off the top. God said to test him in this and see if he would not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing upon you so much that you cannot contain it. And that's not just money. Money's part of it, but that's not all the blessing that he pours out on you. But statistics show that 83% of people who come to church every single week do not tithe. 83%. So I'm going to ask you and challenge you with this. You trust God with your eternal salvation as a Christian to save you from, from going to hell. A place of eternal damnation and torment. We trust God with our eternal salvation, but we won't trust him with 10% of our salaries. Does that make sense? doesn't make sense, does it? Test him in this. If you want to live in God's economy, you need to obey him with money. It's all his anyway. Test him in this. And I want to challenge you with one more thing, too, to stay in God's economy. I challenge every one of you to sell out 100% completely to God. Hold nothing back. Give him your life, your desires, your dreams, your passions, your hopes, your dreams. Every single thing that you have on the inside of you, give it to God and keep nothing in your heart that he did not put there. Trust him with everything. Trust him in all you do and serve him and not yourself. Because the truth is, none of us can overcome sin without his grace. You can't do this in yourself. Why are you holding on to something you can't keep? Trade something you can't keep for something that you can't lose. Our God is faithful, and he will bless you. And if your heart doesn't feel right about this, and you're like, man, I don't know if I can do this, I'm going to tell you right now, you can't. Ask God to change your heart. I did. He changed my heart. I'm sold out, 100% committed. You can be 100% committed. Whatever God tells me to do, I'm going to do it. Because I trust him, guys. And there's nothing in this world that's worth holding on to because it is passing away. But the one that's coming, praise God, will never pass away. I want you to live in God's economy where the only inflation is moving from glory to glory. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for Jesus, and I pray that your sweet Holy Spirit will convict us and guide us in the paths that we should take, that the right paths will burn more brightly and be more desirable than those that would lead us astray. In this time of communion, Lord, I pray we consecrate ourselves and our hearts to you. Thank you for the blood of your, Jesus, your Son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen. For reasons they can't explain, they'll come to Iowa. No, I, I, you hear that voice, and you just have to go into those pieces. We've been saving Darth Vader for the end. I lost my son about 
for the first 10 minutes of the sermon. He's like, Mom, it was Darth Vader. You know, he was freaking out. So. I love this slide from last week. Love requires concentration. It requires intention and doing it on purpose. I want to uh, quiz you. What do you think the Oxford English Dictionary declared as the word of the year in 2013? And you're going, come on, man, I've slept since then. I don't have a clue. This word was increased in usage that year 17,000%. And uh, it was a unanimous choice by all of the editors of the Oxford English Dictionary as word of the year. Any ideas? There you go. It's this word right here. Selfie. Selfie. Because somewhere around 2010, 2011, smartphones started having cameras on the front side of them. And you could take a picture where the center of the picture was you. Was me. Apple estimates that 92 million selfies are taken every day. That should terrify us, all right? Ages 18 through to 34, 82% of them have taken a selfie. How many, how many of you have taken a selfie? Just curious. All right. All right. And the rest of you are lying, so it's okay. Um, 259 people since 2014, 259 people have died taking selfies. Most of those, they said over half of them were in India. Here is some examples of some crazy selfies that are coming up on the screen here in just a second. None of these people died. Nobody was injured in the making of this sermon, all right? This girl on the left is a Russian model named Angela Nikolou. I don't know if I'm pronouncing. She is uh, Instagram famous for taking risky selfies. She's on top of an antenna on top of her boyfriend or whatever. I don't know who it is. But uh, the one on the top right is actually David Gonzalez from 2018, and that is the top of Mount Everest. So you're getting a picture from the top of the world. And as if that wasn't tall enough, the one on the bottom right is NASA astronaut Anne McLean. In 2019, she was working on the International Space Station, walked out and took a selfie from 280 miles above the Earth. Self is at the center of nearly everything we show the world. And every day, the prevailing currents of this culture are taking us in the direction of self. Now, Jesus was constantly inviting his followers to go against that flow. All the time he was with his, his disciples, he was trying to get them to think of other people. In uh, Mark chapter 9, they're walking on the road and they start discussing which one of them is the greatest. Remember this whole conversation? And Jesus said, you want to be the best? You want to be the greatest? Then you need to learn to be servant of all. Now what he's saying is it's not bad to want to do great things. But what is bad where it comes into problem is when those great things are what the world thinks is great, and, and it becomes our focus. The self-virus was so strong in them that these guys had been at seminary for three and a half years with the best rabbi on the planet. You hearing me? <laughs> 
They had been walking with Jesus every day. They had been close to him every day and hearing his words. And even up to the Last Supper, they are still having arguments about self-importance. Well, which one of us gets to sit by Jesus? Which one of us gets to sit to his right and his left? We're in this series called Authentic. Real faith, genuine faith, faith that is real, that makes real disciples. And we're finishing it up today. We'll start a new series next week. We've spent five weeks in one chapter of the book of Romans. And I hope you've been challenged. I have. I, I hope you have read it multiple times in multiple different versions. Because Paul is challenging believers not to just like Jesus, but to be like Jesus. We're going to be in Romans chapter 12. We're going to pick up in 17 through 21. And I've tell, told you a couple of times this morning that this stuff's kind of difficult. I don't want you to think I'm preaching at you because most of this has been aiming at me all week. All right, It's what Scripture says. And Paul is trying to train us and teach us to be the real church, the, the authentic church. And he is dealing with how... How do Christ followers respond to being hurt? Join me in Romans chapter 12. If you're online, you're on the radio, thanks for joining us. Central Christian Church, I'm going to be, excuse me, in verse uh, 17, um, using the New Living Translation today. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I'll pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, then give them something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. I submit to you that these are some of the most radical words that have ever been spoken. They are crazy radical for that time, and they're crazy radical for our time. But Paul didn't really start it. It started a few years before this, when Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, starts talking, and, and he starts that whole passage with the, you have heard it said. Do you remember this section? Well, you have heard it said, don't commit murder. But I tell you, don't even have hate in your heart. You have heard it said, don't, don't commit adultery. I've said, don't even, I'm telling you, don't even have lust in your heart. You hear what I'm saying? He's saying, kick it up a notch. It's, it's more than just the words. And Paul continues this monumental chapter of authenticity dealing with self. How does a Christ follower deal with our enemies? How does a Christ follower deal with junk that has happened to us and we want to get even and we want to get back at them you see how we answer this question how does a christ follower deal with enemies declares it reveals what kind of a god we serve it reveals his character and paul goes in verse 17 he goes against culture and he really kind of goes against scripture In verse 17, when he says, never pay back evil for an evil. Why I say he goes against Scripture 
is because these people were Jewish and they were raised in the Torah. And the Torah is going to teach you an eye for an eye. Does that, you hear what I'm saying? Now, Jesus had come along and said that, that we're, we're going to live differently. And Paul is, but he's going against their, their background. He's actually teaching us how to respond when evil happens. He expects a response. He says, don't pay back evil with evil. He's calling us to respond in exactly the same way Jesus did. But a lot of us get hung up on this section and the section that Franklin used last week in verse 14 where it says, bless those that have hurt you, bless and don't curse, right? We get hung up on this because, well, Don, you're telling me if I forgive them, then I'm just letting it go, that it's just no big deal. No, that's not right. First of all, that's, that's wrong. It is a big deal. Okay, I'm not saying that when we forgive that justice is not take, is not going to happen and we just have to take it and we just have to deal with it. There is justice. But how we hang on to it and what we deal with is it can be toxic. I found this quote and I I've found at least four people it's been a, <laughs> that it's been attributed to. I have no idea who started. Nelson Mandela's, Gary Smalley, Anne Lamont, Kyle Adelman all have been accredited with this statement. Those who refuse to forgive are drinking poison in hopes it makes the other person sick. Isn't that a great thought? I'm going to show you how mad I am at you. I'm going to glug, glug, glug on this poison and I hope you die. That doesn't make, make any sense. Paul is challenging us to live honorably. He says live different. Live at peace. Revenge at its base is self. You hear me? This is hard. It's, it's self-centered. When you want to get even, when you focus on revenge, what you're basically saying is that you're more important than God. Your hurt is more valuable than what God's had to deal with. Well, I know, but Jesus hung on the cross and all, but you don't understand what she said about me. Do you hear me? And, and that's ugly and that's hurtful, and I don't want to hurt anybody. I'm, I'm trying to get us to see where we deal with revenge. You see, in our selfie-centered world, it's all about getting even, isn't it? How many of you heard, well, I'm going to get even with him. How many of you heard phrase like that. You know what's interesting? What's really ironic about that? We never want to get even. We want to get above. Yeah, I'm going to get even with him. No, we don't ever do that. We want to get above them. Well, then what do they want to do? They want to get, and then it is a nonstop escalation, and we don't ever deal with it. If anybody ever had a right to get angry, if ever anybody ever had a right to to want revenge, to really let somebody have it, it would have been Jesus at the Last Supper. Now, in the Luke 22 passage of the Last Supper, it's really interesting because it says Satan had already entered Judas Iscariot. It's at the beginning. It's right before the meal. Satan had already entered Judas Iscariot. Now, think about that. Jesus knows that. He knows that that has happened, and he knows that this guy is sitting at the table. One of his best friends that's been with him for three years is about to stab him in the back. He knows what Peter's about to do. Wouldn't there be an okay point where Jesus said, you know what, before we go out to that garden, I'm going to let you boys have it. Wouldn't that be fair? <laughs> Wouldn't that seem like 
of anybody that had the right to do that, he would have had a real argument for revenge. But instead of trying to get even, he went and got a towel. He got down on one knee and he washed the feet of Bartholomew. He washed the feet of Andrew. Then he washed the feet of Peter. Then he washed the feet of Judas. How do we hold on to what has happened to us? Friends, I'm not in any way trying to make light of what has happened to you. I know that we have people in here who have dealt with heavy, heavy stuff. And I'm not in any way trying to make light of it. I'm trying to talk about how we deal with that can determine a lot of our future. On August 4th, 2020, in Beirut, Lebanon... A huge, massive bomb exploded in the port. Many of you saw this on the news because, let's be honest, it was 2020. What else were we going to do? We were just watching TV. Sadly, 220 people were killed. Over 6,500 were injured instantly. It blew a crater 140 meters square. That's over a football field in all directions. It was a massive hole in the ground. So much so it registered 3.3 on the Richter scale. It caused almost $7 billion in damage. And when it happened, it released a noxious gas that could have infected or could have affected 2.5 million people. But here's one little problem. It wasn't a bomb. It was fertilizer. When it first happened, it had all the earmarks of a terrorist activity. Now, us Americans, we know what a fertilizer bomb can do because of Oklahoma City. And this bomb, they said, was somewhere in the the vicinity of over 200 times the one that was in Oklahoma City. But it wasn't a terrorist activity. It wasn't a setup thing. When you read this story about what really happened, it's, it's, if it didn't cause so much damage and death, it would be laughable. It was fertilizer that had set in a barn on the docks for six years. Nobody had touched it. Nobody had treated it correctly. Nobody, they weren't sure if anything, nobody had even been in there in years. They didn't even know what it was. Turns out the company that had it all when they were bringing it into port, the company declared bankruptcy. They couldn't pay off their port fees, so they just took it all in and held it hostage. Well, the company went bankrupt. The ship actually sank out in the harbor, and everybody forgot about it. It sat in an unsafe warehouse for over six years. It was mostly ammonium nitrate. We know that because of Oklahoma City. That's what happened. But let's see if we can make it personal and keep it PG. What do we have when we, get, when we see fertilizer around here, around our area? What is fertilizer usually? It smells bad. It's usually, can we say this, poop. Okay? It's usually cow poop. Sometimes chicken poop, okay? Uh, but, but it's usually that. And, and we see them come get it out of the dairies, and they give them big truckloads, and they take it out in the fields. They spread it all over the fields. Now, Mike's a farmer. It's a good stuff usually, isn't it? It, it blesses the land. It, it helps to heal the land. But if you leave it all in a pile, does it bless that land right under it? No, it kills it. If you leave it in a barn in Beirut for six years and you don't ever check on it, you know what it does? It blows up. It becomes explosive. It was meant to be scattered. It was meant to be spread around. It was meant to be a, a something that, 
that doesn't stay put, but you store it and you keep it and you hold on to it, it becomes dangerous and it destroys. I hope some of you are talking and thinking through the metaphor there. Friends, sometimes we have had some bad stuff happen to us. And if we keep that down here and we just hold it inside, eventually we're going to blow up. Eventually, lives are going to be destroyed. And Paul even goes on to say, it's going to be dealt with, but not by you. I get that bad things have happened to you, but that's not our department. Revenge is not on our job description. Our job, be disciples, make disciples. Is that fair? Be disciples, make disciples, and He will handle it. But how much do we want to be like Jesus? Or do we just like Jesus? I want us to be like Jesus. See, too many people have settled for a watered-down version of Christianity where they can be the word Christian and it's mainly just associated with a building with no noticeable consequences, no, no follow-through. There's no change in our lifestyle. You see, to a Western Christian, we can act right and vote right and, and go to church right or go to the right church and carry the right version of the, and and we're pretty right. And there's no consequences to it. There's nothing different about us. And you see what Paul is trying to challenge us and Jesus has challenged us and God has challenged us that bad stuff is going to happen. Poop is going to happen in your life. Let Him deal with it. You hearing me? Let Him deal with it. It will be taken care of, but not by you. Question, when do you look the most like Jesus? Here's what I think. I think we look most like Jesus when we treat people in a way they do not deserve. He says down in verse, 17, or verse 19, if they're hungry, the people that have hurt you, the people that have said the horrible things about you, if they're hungry... Feed them. It means you're, you know what their needs are. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. He is not requiring that we be in relationship with people, but he's saying don't treat them as they deserve. They deserve hatred. They deserve condemnation. They deserve retaliation. But we're called to be different. We're called to be authentic believers and show real Grace. Let's be honest, lots of people are skeptical of Christians and church. Usually because they've seen a lot of people with that name Christian, Christian that haven't had a lot of Christ in them. Is that a fair statement? They've seen bad examples. And so they're skeptical. But friends, if the church lives as she should, we are always going to be different than the world. We are always going to be against the flow of culture. We're always going to get pushback from the world. I'm going to make a statement here. It's probably going to offend some of you. It's not my purpose. I just want you to hear my heart. Friends, I don't think America is going to wake up tomorrow and suddenly be godly. Now, hear me. Do I want revival in our country? Absolutely. Anybody in here? Of course. But this idea that we all come together and let's just have revival, it doesn't happen. 
And America and, and culture is following the God of this age. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says the God of this age. It's always been going that direction. We're called to go a different direction. We're called to be against that flow. If we are against that flow, then bad things are going to happen to us. Our community needs to see us loving differently and living differently. They need to see us forgiving differently, drawing people into community, even when we've been harmed. We need to be followers and make followers. Now, we started this series five weeks ago with with a stat that kind of rattled me. 91% of all Americans claim a belief in God, yet only 31% have any active walk with Christ. And Paul gives this spectacular one-chapter description of the authentic church. Now, if you stick with me for just a second, let's just as a way of review, he starts it out and he says, in view of God's mercy, if you want to be the real church, keep your eyes where they need to be in view of what God has done. He says, offer your bodies. One of the things we talked about is one of the problems with being a living sacrifice. Living sacrifices tend to crawl off the altar. We tend to get back to self. He's saying, put yourself out there. And he says, don't conform to the pattern of this world. What are your patterns? Are your patterns those of a Christ follower? Do you read like a Christ follower? Do you pray like a Christ follower? Do you, are you, do you have the habits of a Christ follower? I didn't ask if you go to church. You see, the authentic church is going to have patterns that look like Jesus. The authentic church is gifted. Everybody has gifts. Everybody is going to be using those gifts. And we need to be using those gifts. Franklin challenged us last week that real love is intentional. It's not accidental. It is on purpose. It is with concentration. And all of this chapter is telling us the church is a we movement, not a me movement. It's not about me. We need to get the me out of member, all right? We need to get back to just being the body of Christ. But that is so hard to practice when we live in a selfie-centered world. You hearing me? Where this is the emphasis. Well, I want it the way I want it, and I want the things that I want, and I want it to look like me, and I want, it, I want people that look like me. Uh-uh. It is not about this part. It is about Him. I, and one of the things that I was really, I was reading through this whole thing, Paul's thoughts here on revenge, Paul's thoughts here on evil, he presupposes that evil will happen to you. Now, get this. He didn't say, if evil happens to you, don't pay it back with evil. He says, when it happens, he presupposes the fact that we are following God, we are walking a different path, that we're going to have bad stuff happen to us. He's not wishing that on anybody. But he's saying, you're going to get hurt. Somebody's going to say something about you. Somebody's going to leave you out. How will you deal with it? And how you deal with it can point others to our God. One of the greatest arguments for skeptics, one of the greatest arguments for culture, I think one of the greatest uh, apologetics in all of Scripture comes in one little verse at the end, Romans 12, 21. Now, 
I'll tell you, I love this chapter. I spend a lot of time in it. I spend most of my time in verse 1 and 2. But look at verse 21. It's such a simple phrase. It is one of the most powerful apologetics to all of the world. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There is no effective rebuttal to treating people with grace. There's no effective... I'm going to be graceful. Well, I don't want to be. Well, I don't really care. <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to be graceful. You see, when he is challenging us to respond to pain. He even says, absolutely overcome evil with good. He's, he's not saying be passive. Don't be overcome with evil. And he says, no, get on the offensive. You be the one that gives the grace. You be the one that exudes the grace. When we p- treat people in a way they do not deserve, we look like Jesus. Friends, this is not about our careers. It's not about signing up for a program. This is a total redefinition of ourself. You see, an authentic Christ follower... Somebody that is a real disciple is going to do this every day. They're going to share grace every day. They're going to be hope-filled every day. We're going to keep our focus in view of God's mercy. We're going to keep our focus. We're going to put our body on the, on the altar. We're going to keep it on the altar. We're going to keep our patterns based on Him. We're going to do all of these things. It's not what we're called to do. It's what we're called to be. I was reading uh, Bob Goff. Uh, is a really popular author right now. I love his stuff. He's talking about all the different things we start in churches. And he said, we need to stop calling it ministry and start calling it Tuesday. And I like that. What he means by that is stop coming up with all this other stuff and just do it every day. You hear what I'm saying? Show this kind of grace every day. We get hung up on bless our enemies. Folks, that has to change today. We've got to be the people that bless our enemies, that wish them well, that desire God's favor in their lives. I'm not in any way saying it's okay what they did to you. In fact, I, it really frustrates me when we get two kids together and make them apologize. Hey, say you're sorry. I'm oh, sorry. And the other one goes, oh, it's no big deal. Yes, it is. It's a big deal. Okay? But we are called to be different. He says, bless them. Don't curse them. You know what cursing is? It's wishing pain on them. It's calling down doom on them. It's praying against them. You really want that on your resume when you get to the pearly gates? That you prayed against other people? I'm thinking that would be a bad bad section of the resume there. This radical teaching of Jesus that Paul continues is how we deal with our enemies. We bless them. It's radical. It's crazy. It's insane that we would do that. The world says, get them back, pay them back, get even. And God's economy is different. Stephen Colbert is a night host. He's a comedian. Not a fan. I'm not approving anything he said, but uh, he has some shows. And he was... He was a commencement speaker at Northwestern University in 2011. Somebody sent me this copy of this speech a couple of weeks ago, and I've been kind of sitting on it. I didn't even really think much about it. I was like, I'm not going to read this. But down in the middle of it, he, he makes some really good points. And, and one he shared with me, I want to sh- share this paragraph with you. 
He says, when I graduated, he graduated from Northwestern. They asked him to come back and be the commencement speaker. He said, when I graduated, I went to Chicago and joined an improv group. Now, if you're a follower of all this kind of stuff, he joined what's called Second City, and that's a very famous improv group. Uh, John Belushi was in it. A lot of people were in it. It's, it's really a proving ground for young comedians. He joined this improv group, and here's what he said. What I learned about improv is that in, pro- at, in improv, the scene is never about me. You have to spend all your time thinking, how can I set up and make the other persons more important? And the whole time, they need to be thinking the same thing. No one person is leading. You're all following. You're all serving. You're all building up the other players. No one person wins. You all win together. Then he goes on. Life is a lot like improv. You wake up. Life throws you an audible. You're thrown into a scene, and you have to improvise. No one person wins. You cannot win your life. You see, our win is not, you hear me? Our win is not, let's get a bunch of people together in the same room that like Jesus. Let's get all of the people, let's get them from other places, let's all get them right here, and let's all like Jesus together. That is not our win. Our win, when we win, our win is when we get a bunch of people together and we empower us to go out there and be like Jesus. Let God handle the hurt that you're dealing with. Now, I want to be real clear. Maybe you're dealing with hurt and you need to speak to somebody about it. You need to get in counseling. You need to get in AA. You need to visit with people. You need to have people stand with you. I'm a big fan of that. Getting mentally healthy is very, very important. Because if you don't, you will leave all that stuff in here and it will blow you up. It will blow up your marriage. It will blow up your family. It will cause damage. But the win for us is to be an authentic follower of Jesus. I pray you've been challenged by this chapter. I was telling the other other services that as I've been reading through it, when I've challenged you all to read it a dozen times, I want to read it. And every time I read through it and I'm going through some of the first stuff, I go, oh man, there was a whole sermon right there. I could have done that one. We probably could have done this for like 20 weeks, but you all would have killed me. So uh, we, we wouldn't do that. But I want you to hang into His Word. And I want these words to to soak into you that you are valuable, that you are loved, and that we need to go out of here and be authentic. Amen? Thank you for listening to audio from Central Christian Church in Portales, New Mexico. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To connect with us, visit our website at centralwired.org.